This podcast is supported by the University of Tartu Astra Project Peraspera, financed by the European Regional Development Fund. Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of the Communicating Science Podcast, where we discuss the challenges and pitfalls of PhD research and hopefully give you some insight and advice. I'm Jason. And I'm Katarina. And we're your hosts. For today's episode, we'll be talking to Cheryl Geisler. Cheryl is a professor of interactive arts and technology at Simon Fraser University. She has written on the nature of texts, especially those mediated by new technologies. She's also the author of the book Analyzing Streams of Language that has been published in 2004. Her research interests include advancement of women in academia, technologies of texts, and verbal data analysis. So, uh, welcome, Cheryl. Thank you very much for uh, agreeing to take uh, part in our podcast. We're very happy to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, our first question would actually address uh, your book, Analyzing Streams of Language, where you propose a methodology for describing and coding streams of language. And uh, as you did speak about this during today's lecture, we would like to hear a bit more about the data you selected and what kind of methodology you developed, especially for those who weren't as lucky to be uh, at your lecture. Uh, I mentioned this morning, uh, I developed the methodology because when I started as a graduate student, uh, my professors would say, okay, get the data, now go code it, and they would give me no further instruction. And I mm -hmm. thought that that was insufficient uh, to do a good job. Uh, when I said that this morning, two or three students <laughs> repeated that back to me that that's exactly how they felt. Um, so uh, I've coded all kinds of data. Uh, I've done uh, think aloud protocols, text, online interactions, conversation, uh, focus group interviews, regular interviews, uh, transcripts of classroom conversations, all kinds of uh, data. Um, and um, we're currently writing a, a new book uh, called Coding Streams of Language, which is a major update from the 2004 book that you talked about. And it's probably coming out next year uh, and it will be available online for free uh, since we're going to do open source uh, publishing, so. Yeah, and one of the things we wanted to ask you about was sort of the technologies available for these types of coding. So you mentioned, for example, doing one in Excel and then the program that you're using now, but how do you think these programs have changed the way people deal with coding and language and research? Well, I mean, when I started coding with spreadsheets, it wasn't even Excel. It was before Excel. And I remember they were very slow. So you would type in a code and then hit the return and walk down the hall and because it would take that long to calculate. And now, so it seems incredible, the amount of power behind uh, a simple spreadsheet like Excel or like MaxQDS. So there's a lot more powerful terms of memory and processing speed. Um, so that certainly has changed and that allows you really for a larger database and, a, and more complicated analyses. There's a lot of, in uh, some of the qualitative data packages like MaxQDA, there's a lot of uh, complex um, uh, searches that can be done. Uh, complex pattern matching, which really hasn't been in reach for that many years for, for the regular, you know, researcher. Yeah. And even kind of going into that a little bit further, I know that the kind of coding is very, is something almost all researchers should know, 
but oftentimes you get to points where people have kind of no ability in it. I know when I was doing my MA, there were some times where I definitely needed to do some coding, mm -hmm. but I lacked the skill. How important do you think it is for all researchers, no matter what the field, to at least have some basics in coding? Well, I think anybody that's dealing with language data uh, would want to code, probably code data. So, um, I don't know if a physicist needs to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are, you know, use if you have open-ended questions uh, in a questionnaire, or if you, or if you're doing interviews, anytime you're gathering language, there's, um, there you need to process that in some way and categorize that, and that's what coding is. Mm -hmm. Definitely useful. And going to a somewhat different topic is the publishing game. Well, as many PhD students are now learning, the publishing game, getting published, is a very important thing that they need to do. And oftentimes people are kind of thrown into it. It's their first time ever getting anything published. I know for me, the first time I published was this year. Okay. So I had my pu first publication just come out in September, but it was an entirely new experience for me. So how would you describe the publishing game and the importance of playing in it and just some general advice on how PhD students should go about it? Well, congratulations on your publication. Uh, you know, there's so many different aspects to it. Um, one, of the th one of the key things that new researchers have to keep in mind is how to, how to manage the, uh, re your response to uh, comments from reviewers because that's, there's an essentially a, a review process that goes on in any quality publications. Uh, it's not going to just say yes or no. They're going to give you feedback, um, and hopefully they've asked for revisions based on that, the reviewer feedback. So um, what I think people who are new to the publishing game, the mistake they can make is to, is to believe that everyone else gets good reviews and they are the only ones that have ever received reviews that were less than stellar. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you're new to it, you can get very discouraged. And so uh, one mistake that I've seen more than, uh, that I've perhaps made and certainly a lot of other people make is that they don't, they don't follow up on the revision comments. They get discouraged yeah. by them. Mm. They put them away, they hide them in a drawer and they try not to think about them. And sometimes, you know, it might be a year later or months later where they try to, you know, follow up on that or they give up on the article uh, or they send it to another journal when if they just process the comments and thought about them, they would realize, oh, I can do this. Uh, mm. So one way that I've discovered to manage that process is, first of all, set things, realize that no matter what the reviewer comments are, you're always going to feel bad about them. So, okay, that's a given. They didn't say five stars and, you know, everything's okay. They want you to make things. And the first thing is the, the changes that they ask for are always going to seem more major than they actually are. So take that as a given, mm -hmm. uh, set it aside, take a deep breath, and maybe three days later, go back and actually start making a revision plan that, uh, that here's what I would have to do to answer these reviewers' comments. Um, and then uh, something that new, those new to the game don't realize is that they can reach out to the editor, especially if there's contradictory comments and they, you can't figure out how you could do both, you know, you get two reviewers plus the editor and they seem to be saying six different things. Go back to the editor and say, this is what I think 
I'm planning to do, given with the feedback, and does that seem adequate to address the comments that you've given, you know, that you've given me? Um, and so verify before you actually take on the the revision task, you know, get, give a little uh, interaction with the editor themselves to see whether what you're whether you're reading the comments correctly, mm -hmm. whether it's what they're they're intending. So. Thank you. And I would actually like to make a small follow-up to sure. this question because you actually pointed out to one very important aspect, and that's precisely this climate of uh, really high competitiveness as well and maybe lack of transparency in the sense of actually addressing these issues. Mm -hmm. Because what we see as younger PhD students, these young researchers, that you usually always see the final product. So you don't see the struggle that actually goes behind right. me, for example, writing an article being rejected for the first time for the second time or not at all or at some point which is actually right. part of the process and this is actually something we're also trying to do with this course communicating science right. and uh, we think it's uh, quite an important agenda but what would you say um, in addition to supervisors or some sort of a safety net um, within your colleagues or peers friends uh, what other aspects would you maybe advocate for to maybe make this these issues much more open to debate in academia the whole review process. The uh, yes, whole yes, yes. I mean, some some journals that I know of are actually uh, encouraging reviewers to sign their reviews. Um, I actually don't know that I feel comfortable as a reviewer. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, at being a you know, um, you're never told you have to sign, but I never do sign uh, because I do think there's some value in anonymous reviewers. Um, I do think it's useful to have the same. You know, if you get asked to revise and resubmit to have the same reviewer the second time as you had the first time so that, you know, they get to come see. Sometimes you send them out and they send them to a whole new set of reviewers and then it's like a different, you have to start over again. Uh, and that, I think, is not good practice uh, in, in uh, you know, editorial practice. So, uh, you know, journals who do that, you might not want to submit to very often. You know, so uh, or you can perhaps even ask the editor if it's possible to to get sometimes they have to send them out to new reviewers because the old reviewer is not available or not interested. But you can always ask. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think editors want the best work, so they need you as well as you need them. So I think it's the, uh, you know, there uh, most of the conferences that I go to give you a chance to meet editors in a session, uh, or uh, or you can just say uh, you know they're going to be there. You ask them to meet one on one. I think the more you interact with an editor, the better off you are, both book editors and journal editors, uh, if they know you as a person, and if you have a, a relationship where you can interact with them. Uh, it shouldn't matter, but it does. Yeah. And going into your own personal story with publishing, going back to your early days and even probably modern ones as well, what's your experience with rejection and how did you handle being rejected mm. for an article for the first time? Oh, for the first time. Or have you ever been rejected? Oh, no. <laughs> I've ever been accepted. No. <laughs> um, you can always remember the... So I know I submitted one journal article to, see, I can remember all the bad stories. One yeah. journal article, one of the best journals uh, in in communication. And uh, the feedback I got, I thought, required such extensive revision that I sat on it. 
And, you know, months later, I got an email from the editor saying, are you going to submit a, mm-hmm. you know, a revision? I really like that piece. I'd like to see it, but I'm stepping down as editor, my, you know, my and uh, and my reading of the the feedback was that she wasn't that interested in it. So I'd actually sent it somewhere else. Uh-huh. Uh, so that was a big mistake on my part. Oh. You know, if I'd interacted with her. Early on, I would have seen that she was actually interested and it would have given me, you know, more of an incentive to stay there. And instead, I just went, you know, somewhere else with it. So that was a mistake. Uh, And when you got into this situation, actually, was this a result of, uh, for example, lack of communication with the supervisor or was there actually somebody to point you out? Well, this was was, uh, when I was an assistant professor, so I was no longer in graduate school. Although I could have gone to my, you know, former supervisor and gotten gotten some advice on that, but I didn't. You know, uh, I think the mistake I made early in my career was to keep most of those things to myself, right? Not reach out, not get advice, not network. That's what often happens with with most of us, I think. Right, we assume we're at fault. Yes, exactly. And whenever I speak to other colleagues and friends, I always feel... Uh, at the same time, mad at myself, uh, and on the other hand, relieved because usually what I hear is, "Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going through." Right. Like I know exactly. how you feel. Exactly. So this communication actually is, is very relevant. Right. And uh, I would actually sort of follow up uh, to this question that uh, Jason also uh, uh, stated, and uh, it regards also writing, but writing a review, mm-hmm. because um, so last year when I was also writing my first article. Um, I got some tips and advice uh, from some senior researchers and uh, one of them pointed out, okay, you can also maybe review a book or a book chapter or an article or something Mm -hmm. because it's a much easier way for PhD students to get published. Mm -hmm. And this actually um, uh, initiated discussion um, uh, regarding how competent actually you you must be in order to write a very quality quality review for uh, of a book or a chapter of a book for example is this advisable to do in this first half of your phd studies mm-hmm. or maybe in the second what mm-hmm. would you say well um from what i understand uh talking to judah earlier it, it uh you to do a thesis you have to write articles do reviews count they don't count as part of that uh, article publication do they I don't think so. Yeah, so I, would I don't think not, so. I'm not 100 percent sure. It's not yeah. reporting your research. So, so uh, just I wanted to clarify that. I think, I mean, I wrote an, uh, I think one article review when I was a graduate student. Um, I don't know. I tend not to advise it for PhD students because I think that they distract you. But if it is something that you will base your research on. You know, or if if it's, uh, I think the best kinds of reviews are where you review more than one thing, so you can kind of compare them and mm. contrast them, and especially if they're in the area that you're working on, that can kind of give you insight into your research agenda and kind of and clarify. Um, but otherwise, I think, uh, and here I would be a little out of depth, but in uh, uh, in the job market in the United States. Um, reviews don't count that much towards your tenure after you're hired, and they don't count that much for getting uh, research-oriented jobs. But if you're looking for uh, a a more teaching-oriented job, then they count. So depending on what your personal goals are uh, and where you see your, you know, where you see you want to head, 
reviewer may or may not be a good idea. It, dep it depends on what you're looking for. And this can be very tricky, I think, because uh, rarely PhD students can know, you know, what you want to do in a couple of years exactly. So usually we get quite dispersed right. and work in many directions. Right. But right. thank you for this answer. It makes sense. Yeah. And switching topics a little bit, uh, I was talking to Katarina earlier, and one of the things she mentioned you did was you kind of focus on the promotion of women in academia. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in, again, since you've been working on this for a little while, how do you think the situation has changed in recent years for women, and how do you think it is shifting and where it will go in the future? Ah, uh, okay. So most of the work that I've done with women in promotion has been in the in the science and STEM fields, science, technology, and mathematics. Um, and I mean, and I've looked mostly at promotion to full professor. So uh, it is the case that um, until women occupy full professor ranks, sort of on par with men in the university, there's going to be discrepancies in, uh, in the promotion processes because uh, full professors, they're ones that write tenure reviews. They're the ones that, you know, that run the university. So if you're not, if you see women are not in those positions, then you don't see role models. You don't see, uh, um, you, you don't see conditions that are favorable for women's, women thriving in academics. Um, so right now, um, women are, except in some of the, in areas like economics, physics, but in most areas, the, the women are getting PhDs at the same rate, uh, or sometimes even better rates than men uh, in, in fields, but, and they are starting to get hired in, in entry-level positions at the same rate, but they're not being promoted at the same rate, uh, although things mm -hmm. are improving. Um, so it's, um, Generally speaking, men are two to two and a half times more likely to be promoted to full professor than than men. Uh, and I mean, less likely, excuse me, mm -hmm. uh, women yeah. less likely. Uh, but that's changing. Uh, but I don't think we can assume it's just going to change if we don't think about it. Mm -hmm. you know, we have to be aware. And uh, there's a lot of things that universities can do to ensure that uh, things are are equitable. And even kind of going into that more, so for example, before we were talking about the publishing process, right. do you think the situation has any differences in perception? So for example, if a male versus a female submits an article, do you think there's any disparity there? Well, there have been studies that have sort of, uh, I think, articles and also grant proposals and that have names on them, and the, if, the, if, the, if it's a woman's name versus a man's name on the piece, it's less likely to be accepted. Um, most review processes for that reason, uh, it depends on the field actually, but uh, many fields are anonymous uh, for that reason. So you don't know the gender associated with the, the piece. Mm. Um, I think, you know, it's a very complex dynamic as to why women might not advance as quickly uh, as men. Um, you know, some of the women aren't, tend to be as good at networking and that's why I talk a lot about networking and reaching out they tend to be more I mean uh, uh, not get advice as quickly and uh, or not uh, and also I think and the reason for this might be a little hard to uh, a little complex but 
uh, men tend to be, department chairs, uh, administrators tend to be men, so they, they tend to take care of men more easily uh, uh, than they, and there's some maybe reluctance or not realizing that they should be extending the same level of care. Uh, to new women faculty, uh, so uh, they don't get taken to lunch, you know, they don't share in the sort of back uh, hallway conversations, uh, and so they don't know as much. They don't have as much cultural capital. Uh, women tend to be less, uh, more reluctant to do self-promotion uh, because we feel uncomfortable about it, so uh, sometimes we have to learn to, uh, to, um, Kind of a toot our own horn, I think is the, mm -hmm. the yeah. phrase that I've often heard used, uh, and get comfortable with that, calling attention to our work. Um, but uh, and then of course there's a lot of issues with family responsibilities uh, that that affect women differently than men. Mm. Uh, and basically continuing with the same topic, have you by any chance had uh, any particular experience? Uh, either recently or when you were younger, when you, for example, really uh, felt this kind of discrimination or any kind of discrimination because you were a woman, women in academia, or maybe one of your mm -hmm. colleagues, mm -hmm. if it's too private in this sense. Women who are per perceived as aggressive are perceived as not as congenial, whereas men who exhibit the same level of aggression are just seen as sort of uh, doing the normal thing. Uh, so yeah. it's very, uh, women have trouble negotiating, and if they negotiate strongly, then they're, then they're seen as not, you know, acceptable. But if they don't negotiate at all, then they don't make any sense. So there is not a clear path uh, for success for women. Uh, and so you have to, um, I have found uh, that, I, I had to find a way for ne to negotiate things that I wanted that was comfortable to me without being overly aggressive, but without being, mm. you know, without not asking for things, right? Uh, and, um, you know, one, some of the recent research suggests that one of the best things women can do is ask for things for other people, that they're much better at asking for others than for themselves. So you know, say, you know, I could, I need a, you know, I need to take care of my family or I need to, you know, I'm looking out for someone else, not for me, but because, you know, I remember uh, when I was taking a, a job uh, uh, negotiating, uh, uh, I, I left, uh, I went to Vancouver to take a job as a dean. And I remember saying, I want, I thought that the salary offer should have been higher the way I asked is I said, I can't really, I could, I really like this job, but I can't bring my family uh, to Vancouver for a lower standard of living just because I really want to take this job. Mm. So, you know, and that was effective, you know, and I was comfortable saying that, whereas I wouldn't have been comfortable saying you should be paying more, me more. I, uh, you know, it's for me, right? I couldn't say it that way. So I think we have to figure out ways of negotiating that are, that are consistent. Um, uh, I think also getting advice. One of the, the best strategies I've found to deal with department chairs or administrators, people who are above me, is to, is to ask them what, the, if they were me, what would they tell me to ask for? Uh, because they show, tricky. they will almost always, they will tell you the truth, even though they've never, you know, so they, because they know their job is to support you, but they don't often get called to actually do it. 
So ask them. Mm. Yeah, that's a, a very good point. That's a good point, yeah. And a good point of advice. And kind of coming to a close with that, what is your number one piece of advice for PhD students who are getting into the academic world? Oh, I don't know if I have a number one piece. Uh, or more. That's also fine, more. I think, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, one thing, one thing uh, uh, I thought about in preparation for this was about uh, co-authoring and collaboration. Uh, and one... Um, Different fields have different attitudes towards, you know, the co-authoring. So you have to be sensitive about about whether it's expected or allowed or whatever. But um, I think uh, one of the I did a study a few years ago asking uh, Ph.D. students and their supervisors about how they chose each other, how they. Uh, you know, how did they choose their PhD students? How did the how did they choose their supervisors? Um, and one of the things that was clear was that the supervisors who were, realized, uh, especially in the sciences, that they were going to co-author with the students that they chose uh, and that they depended on those students being able to co-author with them is that they really didn't want to have weak students because it would affect their publishing success. Uh, and mm -hmm. so another so. The flip side of that is if you're a new PhD student or a new faculty member, choose your co-authors very carefully. Always pick people who are stronger than you uh, because I know so many uh, uh, young faculty that have projects that never get finished because their co-authors never finish. Uh, and so you can have a large project, maybe a whole book project stalled for years because you can't get your co-author to do the work. Uh, so don't get into that. So be careful about who you choose to co-author with and make sure that, that they can, uh, that they are strong researchers and that they, that they have a, a, an attitude towards work that will make, have them deliver what they promise. Yeah. And that's actually a really good point because that's the tactic I'm starting off with. So my okay. first piece was published with my co-op with my advisor right so I had a co-authored piece and now I'm working with two other you know senior researchers in the field and working with them on co-authoring two more pieces as I get more used to writing academically it's actually very helpful because before I had not the confidence to go out and write my right. own thing right but I'm learning step by step what it actually takes to write something submit it go through the process. Right. A little more hand-holding has worked well for me, right. at least. Well, and another thing that's good about collaboration is uh, it will keep you on track. Like, uh, when I uh, talked about the book, uh, part of the reason I brought Jason Schwartz in on the book is because I knew that if I was just doing it on my own, it would never get done. You know, I would just <laughs> yeah. diddle around. But if I would say, okay, Jason, I'm going to have this chapter by the end of the month or whatever, I would get it done because that's how I work. Commitments make me get things done. Mm -hmm. So, but that's actually great advice, and I agree with Jason. It helped me as well to write with my former advisor, especially as you point out with somebody who is much stronger in the field, and generally colleagues who actually challenge you, somebody who is always better at something else, and with this you can actually thrive. Right. So I agree. It's it's a great it's a challenging feeling, but a great feeling. Right. And uh, I, I I would say actually in the same direction, and also to sort of. Uh, bring us to, to an ending with uh, one of our favorite topics in academic writing in general, so the mere process of writing. Um, 
it might be a general question, but nonetheless relevant. Uh, so do you actually have any ideas or tips or what was helpful for you in this process of writing uh, not only articles, but generally? So when you encounter various writer's block or uh, some other challenges, uh, what provided you with this continuous motivation also? Because it right. seems to be a very... Uh, quite a pitfall during PhD studies for students to keep this motivation going. I mean, one of the things that uh, I have started to do um, in the last few years, and only in the last few years, I wish I'd done it 20 years ago, but is is something called a next day plan. And I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's a, a technique that has been developed to keep you on track. Um, so the last... 10 minutes of any day that you work on your on writing, you sort of step back from what you're doing and in a notebook or online in a note program, you say, here's the date, here's what I did today, here's what I'm going to do the next time I work. Uh, so so then the next time you come to work, you go back and look and say, okay, this is what I'm doing today. And there's so many times, especially if you're a new faculty member, when you get distracted, you know, you think you're going to start, go back to the writing tomorrow, but it's actually then ends up being next Monday. And mm. then you don't even remember what you were writing about. And this happens to PhD students as well. Uh, you don't remember. So it takes a whole day or half a day to even remember where you left off. And just 10 minutes at the end of a session will uh, not only help you remember right away what you were working on, but will also give you something to think about in the back of your mind, maybe a problem that you're working on or thinking, you know, something to that you want to puzzle over in the meantime, you know, until you actually find some time to sit down again and write. Uh, so I find that a very effective strategy to keep myself mm. on track. Uh, next day plans yeah yeah it seems so because it also points to these small steps that we actually see so what we accomplish which is right. often right very liking during phd right. studies that we see oh great so i did this today right. or this week right the small steps one chapter one presentation one lecture right or various... you know i figured out how to do something today exactly right? and not or i you know Solve i wrote the, the introduction or i mm. or i wrote about this article you know if you're doing a literature review i you know i i kind of figured out where this 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 seminal article fit in mm. uh to the literature that's a great advice yeah yes yeah. thank you very much and Hopefully with that, we can encourage our listeners to do one thing to work towards their research today as well. At least one. <laughs> one thing. But thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank, thank you, you very much. Me. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's episode. Be sure to check out our Facebook and university webpage. We want to hear your questions and feedback, so message us on Facebook and we'll be answering you on a later podcast. Bye-bye for now.